that advice will change the way that we operate. We do stuff that I, I really don't think most podcasts do. Can you talk a bit about pricing strategy? I've turned away probably tens of millions of dollars. What turned you into that person? Complete implosion on every level. I think a lot of people end up in that situation. I know for a fact a lot of YouTubers do. What you just said is an incredibly important thing to say. Man, that was energizing. That's a great question. This is why I'm here. <laughs> so this interview was a pretty surreal experience for me. I spent a lot of my 20s listening to The Tim Ferriss Show, and the conversations that I heard on that show really shaped my identity as an entrepreneur. He's interviewed guests like LeBron James, Jerry Seinfeld, Madeleine Albright, Mark Zuckerberg, and the list goes on. Over the last 10 years, he's released almost 700 episodes, and the show has been downloaded a billion times. He's written five New York Times bestselling books, including The 4-Hour Workweek, which you might be familiar with. It's a book that really redefined the way people think about work-life balance. Colin and I were really excited to have him on the show. He doesn't go on too many podcasts, and Tim is one of the most uniquely qualified people to give us advice on the business that we're building. No matter if you're a podcaster, a YouTuber, or an entrepreneur of any type, the frameworks and knowledge that Tim shares in this episode, you can apply to whatever you're working on. This experience is like incredibly meta for mm. me because the first time that I realized that what we're doing here could be a career was listening to your show. Like listening to the Tim Ferriss show in my twenties being like, that would be a really cool career. Mm. And I'm sure you've influenced a lot of the, the podcasting that we've seen uh, today. You know, you've interviewed people like LeBron James, Bob Iger, Ed Catamall, like Rick Rubin, who's we're both big fans of, um, and had these like deep, deep conversations with them. Mm -hmm. uh, who was the first guest for you that was kind of like, holy shit, that was like a pretty wild person to sit down with? Let's see. The one that comes to mind is actually Ed Catmull. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. who people might know from Pixar. He comes to mind. So let me, let me rewind yeah. and just say that in the beginning, I wanted to remove uncontrolled variables. So I interviewed my friends in the beginning. So I was like, look, I'm not monetizing this. I just want to get comfortable with the format, figure out hardware and editing mm -hmm. and process. So the, the first handful of interviews were all close friends. Ed was the first guest I had on. I had never had a conversation with prior. Mm. And I was so nervous. <laughs> it was, it was laughably bad from a verbal tick perspective. I was so preoccupied that I was going to screw it up or that we weren't going to get along or that he was being forced to do it <laughs> by a publicist, which yeah. does happen. Yep. And I wasn't sure if he was going to play ball. And I had really tied myself in knots before doing this. And I remember exactly where I was. It's one of those, I don't want to say like traumatic experience, but it was so emotionally intense for me. I remember I was like, I was on Long Island. This was where I grew up. By the way, I thought like lacrosse was everywhere in the world right, because right. I, yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah, not yeah, to be yeah. the case, but I was doing the interview remotely on a kitchen counter and started off a little shaky, I think. And ultimately we both found our footing and then it ended up being a really fun interview. Two things. So number one, I realized, okay, I can, I can do this. I can interview someone I've never met. Mm who I haven't had really any direct exchanges with and I can make them comfortable enough or improv jazz my way into a conversation that leads to a relationship afterwards. And I have not remained 
uh, in contact with him. We're not close, but after that, our relationship was very different. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I will say just for folks who may listen to podcasts, which do get polished by the way. I mean, we don't do a lot of editing Mm -hmm. on my side, but we, we do a little polishing here and there. I'm looking at Twitter afterwards and there are all these tweets which were like mmm dot 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 mmm dot 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 and i was like what the hell does this mean i went back and listened to the audio and every time ed said anything i went "Mm, (laughs) mm, mm," so loudly into the microphone it was there were probably 300 mm, it was so bad it was i could not believe how bad it was so I think it's it's a learning process. Everybody's going to go through it, or at least most people will. Strangely enough, I listened to that episode in Copenhagen last summer after finishing Creativity Inc. Oh, nice. I searched Ed's name, mm-hmm. and then your episode came up, and I was like, "Oh, I'll listen to Tim talk to Ed." Yeah. And I didn't notice anything. I didn't so, notice yeah, that. I, didn't notice yeah, that. I listened to that it's, recently. It's been yeah. cleaned up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. it's been there cleaned up after the yeah, fact. Yeah. Okay, good, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm curious your perspective on you know the world of of YouTube has been such an interesting evolution mm-hmm. since we started on it. Um, the, the way I understood YouTube when it first started was like TV on the internet, right? I was like, I grew up watching TV. Uh, I could understand that. And then slowly I, it, you know, came the world of vlogging and I was like, oh, it's not just TV. It's reality TV. It's unscripted TV on the internet. And you start realizing it's depth of this, this connection. And we went through this vlogging era and then it kind of just got like exploded into this spectacle era, right? Of like incredibly expensive YouTube videos and, and, um, unbelievable amounts of viewership. And in concert with that has come the video podcasting wave Mm -hmm. where YouTube creators have built massive audiences and most of their formats are not sustainable, but what has been sustainable for them is converting into long form video podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that has become a huge part of YouTube, you know, all the way to the point where now there's a you can upload a podcast to your channel. It will play in YouTube music. It's it's a terminology um, that is a part of the YouTube vernacular now. And some people refer to it as vodcasts. There's the additional video. Spotify now has video. Like where has the podcasting world come since you know you started? And what's your perspective on it? Happy to tackle that. I also left out one guest that was, I think, okay, an inflection yeah, sure. point, mm-hmm. Let's do which we can potentially come back to. I'll just yeah, footnote yeah, yeah. it and we're well, yeah, gonna come yeah, back, to we'll come back to it. Would be Arnold Schwarzenegger. That oh, was I remember that episode. That was a that was an inflection point in the sense that I realized, oh, this is getting big enough that I can actually get A listers mm-hmm. on cool. this show. Which we'll is come interesting. Back to that. So we can come yeah. back to that. Yeah. Video. Video is certainly not my primary area of expertise, Mm -hmm. but I would say what I've observed, and this is not a novel observation, but certainly I would attribute some of Joe Rogan's ability to pull ahead of his cohort Mm. directly to video and really taking smart advantage of YouTube, not only long form, but also in clips Clips, well before that was considered part of the mandatory playbook. And utilizing YouTube as a search engine and headlining or using both thumbnails and catchy titles slash headlines very, very effectively. And also capitalizing on the news of the moment and having guests on who would be making the rounds just in terms of algorithm strength on not just Google, but also on YouTube. Uh, So I I think that I started to pay attention to video 
when I noticed that Joe, for a lot of reasons, but I think this is one of the primary reasons, was dramatically pulling ahead of a small cohort that he had been part of for a long time. So let's just say Mark Marin, Nerdist, there are others, Adam Carolla, et cetera. And I was like, huh, what is causing, what could be causing this meteoric rise? And the best answer that I can come up with is the use of video mm-hmm. at that time. These days, at least what I'm observing, and then I can give you my perspective, the word on the street, like what you hear now is you have to do video. Yeah. If you want to grow, the driver of that growth is going to be video. Therefore, you need to have video. And I have a visceral aversion to anything that is phrased as a must. And I want to look for edge cases that prove that incorrect. Yeah. What I have certainly seen is people who utilize in the podcasting world, let's say they're podcast native and then move to video in a sense. Yeah that video can be a huge, huge accelerant. If you look at Andrew Huberman, who's executed, I think, extremely well. Yeah. You look at Lex Friedman, who's executed extremely well. Yeah. I do think that a core component of their growth strategy is video, without a doubt. I have resisted the push to video for a few reasons. The first is that it is largely antithetical to the reasons I started podcasting in the first place. Mm. So what did I like about podcasting? Extremely long format in my case. And we can come back to this, but I think a lot of clips get watched and do not convert into listeners sure. mm-hmm. consuming long yeah. form. And so it's become a battle of clips growing social presence, not necessarily an audience, a sticky audience of people who are dedicated to what you're producing in the long form. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with a smaller audience. I want a very particular type of audience. Right. So uh, I don't necessarily want to shift my attention to optimizing for short form. However, uh, what I would say is that starting podcasting, some of the appeal was found in being able to travel with my recording equipment. So I'm here in California right now. I have a Zoom recorder, got a couple of mics. I also have some Shure mics that can attach to my iPhone and someone else's phone. I can carry my recording studio per se in my backpack. Yeah, it's really nice. That provides an incredible level of flexibility. I can also record remotely and certainly the software and options have improved in the last 10 years mm-hmm. Yeah, so that it's very easy with, with surprisingly high quality to record remotely. I like traveling. I enjoy going many different places. I enjoy the flexibility that it provides with scheduling. So let's just say hypothetically, someone's filming a movie and if I have a direct connection with them, which makes things a lot easier rather than having to go through like a phalanx of 500 Mm -hmm. people on their entourage, it's just like, yeah, we can record it. If you're in your trailer and just bored, just like shoot me a text and we can hop on for an hour and you're done. You know, Mm. like you can like hop out of the shower. I don't need video. Like, yeah. Video changes the dynamic. We were talking about this yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit, right? So I, it's, as people who are watching this, if they're watching it, may realize <laughs> I have a very bald, shiny head. <laughs> and so I was like, hmm, looks pretty shiny on the video. Yeah. Yeah. Might want to fix that. Let's yeah. see. And it changes the dynamic, not necessarily yeah. for for the worse, but it does change it. Changes. There are more yeah. considerations. Yep. And so many yep. of my guests, 
I would not, especially in the early phases when I was in hyper growth mode, which I would say I am not in right now. So that also dictates a resist, not a resistance, but a questioning of video, especially when it entails at the higher end, building out a studio, having a location, bringing in staff. I want to be very careful to measure twice and cut once with those decisions because they seem to oppose many of the things that led me to podcasting in the first place. Mm. So I'll stop there. But those are those are some of the considerations. And I will say that I've observed a lot of creators, if they don't have certain values set up front and constraints set up front, they're almost like cats chasing a laser pointer with the latest format, the latest tool, the latest yeah. platform, the latest algorithm change. There are cases where it makes sense. I don't want to say that you that people should not pay attention to the algorithm. Look, if your if your economics in part depend or in full depend on understanding how things have changed, you have to pay attention. Uh, I don't like that feeling. Yeah. Mm. For that reason, I think I have generally been on the dull edge when it comes to platforms. I don't hop on the newest thing immediately. I wait. Yeah. Quite a while. I do think it's so important for creators to tailor their format to their lifestyle. Yes. If they have a good understanding of the lifestyle they want, and if they yep. have a good understanding of what they actually like about the process yep. of what they're doing, and to also understand how heavy video is. Yep. We had an audio-only show called Creator Sport. Mm-hmm. We decided to take it to video, and we did it kind of nonchalantly. Yeah. Because we were like, we understand video podcasts. Mm-hmm. We understand YouTube. It's no big deal. Yeah. It took us a while to get that show off the ground, and it did change the dynamic. Yeah. You know, Our favorite thing about it was that we could record it if we were in the worst mood. Yeah. And all of a sudden we'd flip it on and it was like, <laughs> wow, I feel energized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's 5.30 on a Friday or, or sometimes one in the morning on a road trip for a work trip. But man, that was energizing. Mm-hmm. Turn video on, do it here in the confines of the set, completely changed. Yeah. And we've had yeah. to adjust now to try and find those elements from before video. Yeah, yeah totally. you know, it, was a, it was a privilege to not have video. Choosing a game you can play for the long term. It's, it's so simple, but if you are doing something that is even slightly depleting over time, that is going to compound in a way that is very problematic. Mm. And for some people, educating, performing on camera is very energy additive, right? I think Joe Rogan's exceptional mm-hmm. at it, right? Mm-hmm. He's a comedian. He's used to being on camera. He's very, very good at it. I don't think that is my strongest suit. Right. If I were looking at like the decathlon of content creation, that would not be my strongest event. Yeah. And I get too self-conscious. I think about my shiny head. I think about this, that, and the other thing, you know, for like barring your floss. I'm yeah. like, I think I have some shit stuck in my tooth. <laughs> and I just have enough neuroses without yeah, having to think yeah. about that stuff. Yeah. And what I have realized is long form audio I can do for a long time because intrinsically I find the conversations rewarding. It's a very selfish show for me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I am just chasing my personal interests. And I would be doing that whether or not I had the podcast. The podcast is just a very effective lure for getting people to have a conversation with me if they might not otherwise be open to like a three hour conversation. Yeah. Uh, so the the question of whether you can play the long game is important, not just because sustainability is interesting from a sustainability perspective in and of itself, but if you are on any platform, you are competing for attention. Mm. You're competing for stickiness. You are competing for not just casual fans, but super fans. And if someone else is getting more energy and can sustain a format 
better than you can, you are going to lose. So it's a very strategic, I think, long-term play. And uh, I would also say that video has, and a lot of people haven't experienced this, but one of the cons is recognizability. So I, if anything, would prefer to be less visually recognizable than I am already. Like the, the extent to which I have public exposure is already problematic in my life in a whole lot of different ways, which we could talk about. And I am very hesitant to do anything that will make me more recognizable. And uh, there are privacy concerns, safety concerns. Most people have not experienced those things and it's very hard, I think, to talk people out of sure. any degree of notoriety or fame if they haven't seen or experienced the downsides firsthand. Can I ask you, why do this show or come here, which, which will make you a little bit more yeah. recognizable, perhaps to a different audience? Mm-hmm. Um, and you said hesitant, so that doesn't mean like you don't do anything, obviously. It doesn't mean I don't, I'm already, but, so like, it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste. Of course, too, yeah. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh why come do this show at this point in your career? I think you guys are really good at interviewing. <laughs> and uh, I don't sit in this seat often. I was going to be here. And my mantra for being <laughs> in LA right now is uh, social, not solo, because I have a tendency to put the blinders on and write or work on projects, do a lot remotely via computer or phone. And... Uh, just decided to look for people I respected that would be geographically reasonably close to where I'm going to be for a short stint of time. And I think you guys are very thoughtful in how you approach interviews. And I'm also, I'm a student, right? So I, I, I was like, I want to see how these guys do their thing. I want to to see what it looks like. I want to see what the email exchanges look like. I want to see how they prep. Like Uh, I want to see what gets positioned, what, what things are thought of that maybe I haven't considered. I'm mm. still, I consider myself an eternal blue belt when it comes to interviewing. That's I'm cool. always cribbing and borrowing slash stealing from everybody. Mm. That's really cool. I yeah. appreciate that. I also yeah. resonate with the social aspect of the job. I think if it were not for these interviews and our team, I'm not sure how many people I would actually, yeah. uh, how many new people I would come into contact really, with yeah. on yeah. a daily basis. It's non-trivial. It's a yeah. real thing. So I-, I wanted to dig into what you said about uh, fame. Because mm-hmm. fame is, you know, one of those things as I started, I grew up here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, fame was incredibly attractive to me at a young age. Mm-hmm. I went to a high school that was uh, riddled with with Hollywood producers and, and you know, even my peers and fellow students were acting at the time in, in movies and, and TV. Um, so for me, I felt uh, growing up in LA, like that was a goal of mine. Like I would, I wanted to figure out how to be in the storytelling world, the entertainment world and find my way to, um, some level of notoriety, public notoriety. And when YouTube opened, it like opened the door for me. I was like, oh, I can control it myself here. So it was Mm -hmm. very attractive. And the two things that felt like the reward for this much work and sacrifice as I look back, you know, over a decade, uh, what I thought in my early twenties was like fame and, uh, money. And candidly, the, you know, the, I've been so comfortable with the levels of notoriety we've gotten because the type of content we make attracts people like us. Mm -hmm. And that feels like, you know, it's been really great. 
And it's not like a large, it's not like I can't walk down the street. Um, but there's moments like we were just, we just went out to go pick up lunch and, you know, someone's like, hey guys, love your show. Mm-hmm. And you just recognize how not alone you are in many, many scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious, like if that was something when you embarked on the journey, if you if you wanted to net out like that, if you already had some of it from writing, um, what your relationship was with fame, because I think yeah. it's, as it, you know, it's creators, question. like you, you turn on the camera. One thing that's really interesting is it's a, it's one of the first times that you can also be, when we first started out, you can be famous and broke yeah. because you can make content on the internet that gets thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views, but not figure out the business component. And we had this experience one time where we were driving in downtown LA and we had, we couldn't make any money and we were making YouTube videos for a long time. And someone knocked on our window as we were talking about this concept of being famous and broke. And we rolled it down. He was like, oh my God, are you guys calling in Samir? And we're like, what an odd <laughs> experience this is. Like, yeah. we don't feel like we're doing anything, but people know who we are and they have a perception of us. Yeah. The question is like, what was your relationship with, with fame and notoriety going into it? Yeah. And what is that now? Around when I, when I wrote the first book, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if this made me famous, mm. wouldn't it be amazing? Because you see mostly, not entirely, but you see all the upside plastered everywhere, right? It's like, oh my God, there's this guy. He's like got beautiful women throwing themselves yeah. at him, gets invited to all the cool parties. He yeah. gets to see all the cool things first. Oh my God, it must be great. It must be just highlight reel all day long, you know? So in the beginning that was there for sure. And then uh, pretty quickly though, I was like, oh, nobody told me about this. And I had one friend actually who had had some public exposure. He wasn't even a friend at that time. He was like an acquaintance I had approached at South by Southwest because he was on a panel. And we ended up having one meal together. He read an early copy of the book. Actually, and, and, uh, and he said to me, he's like, I think this is going to make you famous and I can't prepare you for it. I can't prepare you for it, but it's going to be very challenging. And I was like, what? And so he gave me this cryptic warning, right? Mm -hmm. And then I want to say it was 2008 because I had, I bought my first house, (laughs) terrible time to buy a house with an adjustable rate mortgage. (laughs) Oops. Got my face ripped off on that one. But I had bought the house as most normal people do in my own name and then ended up in a million different databases. And really strange people start showing up at my house. Oh, wow. This was probably less than a year after the book came out, but people started showing up and I ended up having to sell the house because one guy was showing up who was particularly unstable to put it generously. Like he was, he was not well. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, (laughs) what does that mean? Like, does that, what do I do now? And I started, I started thinking about how to mitigate some of that risk, but there are certain things you take for granted, just as you might take all sorts of things for granted before a lockdown during COVID. Right? Yeah. And then all you want to do is go out to that restaurant you always complained about yeah, yeah, yeah. to be around people to have a cup of coffee. Yeah. And there are, there's certain things you just wouldn't anticipate. Right. And I'm, this is not for people listening. Like I'm not trying to, give you a sob story, woe is me. There are plenty of upsides also, right? Like without the book and the public exposure, never would have had the opportunities I had in angel investing, which ultimately gave me the most financial security of anything that I've done. On the downside, I'm gonna give you an example from yesterday, right? I'm 
looking for a place to just sit down, chill with my dog and get some work done. Went to a co-working space that was like a pretty high-end spot, invited by a friend and no way I could do work, right? And the people were very nice, but it's like there was no conceivable way that I could focus on anything for more than 15 minutes because people were coming through and it's very flattering, but it's it creates some really unusual social dynamics. You know, the thing that I think about with how long form your stuff is, um, you know that quote where people say like, you're the sum of your five mm -hmm. best friends. Um, I heard that quote two days ago, but they said, you're the sum of your five best friends and that includes parasocial relationships. Okay, tell me more. So you think about in a given week, who's between your ears, right? You might call yeah, your mom, right. your brother, mm -hmm. your best friend. You know, I talked to my best friend the other day on the phone, 20 minutes, fun conversation, laughed, great. If I listen to one of your episodes, I potentially am with you for three hours yeah. uninterrupted in between my ears. Mm -hmm. My relationship with you and the way you speak and uh, your how you might respond to something is really, really, it's almost like AI, right? It's like the amount of input I'm getting of yeah. Tim Ferriss creates a uh, incredibly deep relationship with you. And mm -hmm. we see that with YouTube when you add the face, you know, and, and typically with, with a vlogger or someone who's speaking directly to camera, they're also looking you in the eyes mm -hmm. and you potentially will spend more time with them than you will with your own parents or your, you know, even your best or friends, even your best mm -hmm. friends. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious about that, that parasocial relationship, because I think it has netted out very, it nets out very positively for a podcaster and, mm -hmm. and someone like you, when it comes to the business of advertising, and I say this because I've purchased many items because <laughs> of you, you, the things you've said, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. you, I remember one ad you had about Four Sigmatic, mm -hmm. which is a mushroom coffee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you said this line, and I don't know why this line got me, but you lights said- Lights you up like a Christmas tree. Lights you up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah. I was like, I'll try that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure Colin remembers oh, yeah. when I came yeah. into the office being like, I have this mushroom coffee for us. Yeah. Let's try this now. Uh, or Even me, greens. I, I had like an adversarial relationship to your advertising. Yeah. I have that. <laughs> I want to hear about this. I just feel that way with like personal development, self-development yeah, yeah. content. I'm ready to hey, call it yeah. BS. Like I just am. I think a lot of people should show be. up. You should be. Yeah, yeah. people yeah. are ready it's to be It's a like, shell game mostly. That's yeah. BS. Yeah. And over time, because your ad reads are long and there's a good amount of them. I'm like, oh, well, Tim actually pretty passionate about this yeah. and it sounds pretty authentic. And yeah. I'm like, maybe I do want some mushroom tea. Like, <laughs> like, I, like I want to not be that guy, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is, it is very yeah. effective. But that, that parasocial relationship that gets developed in long format content mm -hmm. is unlike anything else. It, it is. Yeah. And perhaps really stronger is. with the absence of video. It, yeah. I think potentially be stronger if it's just audio. Because my yeah. imagination is filling in the gaps for who I think you are. Uh, what room you may be in, the relationship mm -hmm. you're having with the guest. I'm actually Absolutely. working more, which might make me more engaged. If you don't have the video, you can imagine yourself as another person seated at the dinner or the table. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a little easier to use your imagination for that. And I'm very fortunate. The vast majority of, of listeners I ever bump into are super cool. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I feel very fortunate. And they'll say, I'm sure this is really strange because I know so much about you and you know nothing about me and you must have people come up to you and they think they know you. And if I'm being honest, I mean, sometimes I'll just say this. I'm like, if you listen to me three hours a week, you probably know more about what's going on in my life than most of my close friends. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you actually do on some level know me, which creates an interesting dynamic. And 
usually it's fine. Sometimes it gets pathological and super weird. And I don't suspect that any of these warnings will stop anyone from seeking fame, but I do think it's worth trying to inspect the desire to become famous and ask yourself, if then, <laughs> you know, if I'm then famous, then what? Right. So like, what is the consequence or what are the consequences or the benefits of fame that you are looking for? And look at alternatives to that. I think fortunately for me, in some respects, you know, as I sort of segue into different chapters in my life, I think the half-life of fame is just going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. Interesting. So the, the ability to create the durability of a George Clooney, as we remember George Clooney, or say an Oprah Winfrey, as we think of Oprah, I hesitate to say it's impossible, but it's going to be very hard to build that type of dominance and sustain that type of dominance. There will be some exceptions, maybe the Kardashians, yeah. but by and large, I think the half-life of fame is going to be very short. So as there is an ever-exploding uh, just font of videos, audio, AI is going to multiply this dramatically. It will be very, very increasingly hard, I think, to vie for sustained attention from a dedicated audience. Mm. I wonder if that changes in the um, independent versus like traditional path. Meaning if you're an athlete mm. and you're at the top of your game and you're in live sports content regularly and ESPN is covering you and other outlets are covering you, if that's more of a sustained version mm -hmm. than if you're independently creating. Mm -hmm. Um you know, or if you, you know, I agree with you that what you're saying, I fully agree. I, I look out at who was very popular on YouTube five years ago versus today and, and which creators have, you know, standed the test of, or stood the test of time. And it's, it's a small group. Yeah. Um, it's been very hard to do this sustainably. I think both from audience interest trends, but also from sustainability of creation. When you're independently creating, you don't have a infrastructure around you. Mm -hmm. We actually, we have a term for it where we call it the paradox of permission, where mm. if you aren't in this traditional environment where someone gives you a permission to, to stop, like if someone orders a TV show or a, a show from you, they say you can do eight episodes and mm -hmm. then you stop and then we'll reevaluate. Um, what's beautiful about independent publishing is you, it's a permissionless environment. You can yeah. just do it yourself. But there's also no one there to give you the permission to be like, you can go on break now. Yeah. You know, you you have the permission to pivot if yep. you want. You have the, you know, permission to to evaluate this for a second. Like you're just kind of going and not knowing when to stop, which I think is what yep. shortens the half-life. So I yep. wonder if those other environments where the craft isn't creating, the craft is doing something else like playing sports or acting um, or being a musician, if it's longer because of the other coverage. Yeah. Yeah. So a few things that come to mind from that. One is actually something that Whitney Cummings, who's a comedian here in LA, said ages ago when I interviewed her in, I think it was Venice. So uh, this is all uh, geographically triggered for me, but she said something along the lines of, and I'm not going to get it totally right, but, and Whitney, I apologize if I'm misattributing this to you, but if art imitates life, you have to have a life. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. So when you can, in a permissionless environment, really embrace the freedom of being able to work whenever you want, wherever you want, 
for most people, what that is going to turn into is working all the time wherever you are. And you don't have yeah. someone to stop you other than yourself. Much more problematic than people might expect. There are ways you can contend with that and plan for it or around it. Uh, but that's a real risk for sure. And I would say that my guess would be, and I think this is already happening, is that we let's just say we started with like BBC one, two, three, and we started with ABC, NBC, CBS. And in that environment, you had these kings and queens of media, right? So you have the Oprah's, you've got the the Howard Stern's. And that then became, in a sense, highly, I don't want to say decentralized, but distributed. So all of a sudden, you have user-generated content. Anyone who wants to create a podcast can use an RSS feed. Anyone who wants to upload videos to YouTube can upload videos. And for a while, I think the average or even avid consumer of this content could kind of sort, pick and choose, use discovery to find a handful of people they relied on as their sources of information or entertainment. I think the volume is so high now that it's inevitable that curators are going to become very important mm -hmm. once again. And I don't think that'll take the form of someone of the reach of Oprah. I think that's getting like half the country to tune in to a live interview is going to be close to impossible. But you will have, whether it's via Substack or YouTube or otherwise, you will have like a thousand niche Oprahs and they will be the curators mm. for a category. I think that's inevitable because otherwise people just run out of cognitive bandwidth mm. and the paradox of choice exhaustion. Yeah is so overwhelming that they can't function. So I do think that that's, that's part of the reason why I test everything myself. And this seems like maybe a strange bit to tie into this, but it's, it's so easy to destroy your credibility if you recommend anything or anyone. Uh. And for me, that is, I don't want to say the scarcest resource, but I want to have impeccable credibility and reliability with my audience, especially anyone I might consider in my 1,000 true fans to cite a Kevin Kellyism. Yeah. If people haven't read 1,000 true fans, they should. It's a short article by Kevin Kelly on kk.org. You can find it. I, I do think about that because that is a sustainable competitive advantage for me. Yeah. As I watch where the puck, where the puck is going, and I think that's to niche curated sort of mini Oprahs in different categories, and uh, I'm not attached to being that, but I don't want yeah. to remove that optionality mm -hmm. if there are easy ways to prevent it. Like test all your fucking products and services before you promote mm -hmm. them. It's pretty straightforward. It takes a lot of time, but it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's challenging though because it takes time. And, yep. you know, again, as a young YouTube creator, I remember the first brand deal we were offered, it was $800. And at the time, no one had paid us to do anything. And mm -hmm. so it was like, uh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You know, like- It depends on your on your circumstances, yeah. Yeah. for sure. And it, it was um, Skillshare, right? Yep. Yeah, Skillshare mm -hmm. at $800. Um, hadn't taken a course on Skillshare, yeah. but it seems great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they'll give me 800 bucks to do it and I get to keep making YouTube videos. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that was like a moment where we saw the light. Yeah. Um, 
and we sh- and we proved a model. I think yeah. that this was For worthy ourselves. of being advertised on. Yeah, and it showed other people this is something that you can do. It gave yeah. us the ability to even see what it felt like to be in the advertising business. But sure, I, I think what you just said is an incredibly important thing to say, which is your credibility is a scarce resource, mm-hmm. a- and actually, and it's not easily renewable. It's not renewable, and yeah. the foundation of this entire business that we're all in is credibility and trust. Mm-hmm. Like your audience is trusting you. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trusting that you're going to show up when you say you're going to show up. I'm going to, you know, make a weekly show. They're trusting that the content is relevant to them yep. when you upload something. They're trusting that an advertiser that you, you know, work with is valuable and relevant to them as well and credible. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like if you can break down some of the like anatomy of a good advertising relationship and a mm-hmm. good ad as well. Sure. Uh <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. This is why I'm here. <laughs> uh, the anatomy of a good ad partner. So first I, I would say that we handle almost uh, all ad sales internally. So I, I never outsourced all of my advertising or sponsorship to mm-hmm. an agency. I think that's a viable option. But in my case, a lot of creators should just focus on getting really good at producing whatever the content is yeah. and not become the CEO of a business or a side business that is advertising. I just happen to be very, very comfortable with that and I know how it works and I felt like I could train someone to be very good at it. So I was like, we're going to handle it internally because ultimately whatever the, whatever the slice might be, 15 to 30% gets very expensive as you start to grow if you're successful. And For I was sure. like, I think we can do that internally. We do work with agency is one degree out, maybe two or three who have been very effective uh, and easy to deal with. For me, easy to deal with is very, very high up. So first would be, and I do this a lot, it's product or service first. Like before I even consider the relationships or anything like that, if it's if it seems to be a prospect and I've trained my team at this point, they know very quickly whether something has a snowball's chance in hell of, of being appealing to me. So I, we, I only end up seeing maybe 10 to 20% of, of what comes in anyway. And then at that point, I will either use it myself, or if it's something that I can't use myself because it's, say, some software as a service for mid to large fintech companies. I, that's going to be impossible for me to personally right. test, mm-hmm. but I will back channel. I will talk to their investors, which they generally don't know. I mean, I just know a lot of people in tech. So I will back channel. I will also sometimes, let's just say they're in New York, hypothetically. I'll wait until after business hours on like a Friday and then put up a post on social, which is if you have used, and I will not use the ad because I don't want to tag them and then get have them mm-hmm. maybe flood the comments mm-hmm. with seeded responses, I will say, attention to anyone who's used X. From one to 10, no seven allowed, how strongly would you recommend it to a friend? Pros and cons, question mark. And then I'll look at it. And if it's if it's it has to be eight or higher, or it doesn't make the cut. So just as an example, and I've, I've turned away millions and millions, probably tens of millions of dollars. Wow. If things don't pass in terms of product and service, it's very simple. This is also how I've approached most of my investing, which is not investment advice. Please God, don't try to imitate what I did in early stage. It's a dangerous game, but would I, could I be a power user 
and super fan of mm. this product or service? Yes or no? It's super binary. Yes or no? Would I recommend this to my friends who will give me endless shit if they don't love it? Right? Like my, yeah. my cynical, yeah. salty, yeah. stubborn friends who would try it once, but if they hate it, they're never going to let me forget it. Mm-hmm. Would I send this to them? If the answer is no, do not pass go. And uh, those early steps, which might seem less technical, are the, the bedrock of starting this entire evaluation process. After that, we will get to, say, the, the, the question of relationship. Even before we get to ad read, are these people easy to deal with? Are they being really problematic? Are they pushing back on our, our insertion order document? Right? Are they chewing up a ton of time from my team, which is a very lean team, in a way that is kind of a pain in the ass? And if so, they get cut immediately. Even if they've passed the other hurdles, they get mm. cut. I have no time for it. Just in, in life in general now, I'm like, I don't have an extremely high burn lifestyle. That's by design. I mean, I like certain nice things, but I'm not crazy about it. Uh, and that gives me the flexibility. If you're the average of your relationships and your mm-hmm. parasocial relationships, and this is something I'm going to have to talk to my team about on a regular basis, or that's going to affect them, which it will positively or negatively, depending on the quality of that relationship and the ease of that relationship. If they're a pain in the ass, they're gone. And I'm very strict about that. So if they're reasonable, like it doesn't mean they can't have questions or even object to something in a sort of constructive diplomatic way. But if, if they're, if they're difficult in any capacity, they're gone. And at this point also, I've been very fortunate. The agencies we work with just know it's like Mm -hmm. Tim is really expensive and he's very strict and you just got to know that going in. I'm like, great. Like (laughs) primed. (laughs) Like they know what they're signing up for. Perfect spot to be. Yeah. 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 Like, and if you think it's going to be like a month long negotiation thing where you change all of his terms, like never going to happen. Not a million Mm -hmm. years. And let's say though, that they're like, okay, we understand what we're going for here, which is like, we kind of want to reach the audience of Ted and like movers and shakers in 20 different industries that simultaneously, including journalists at all the top, <laughs> like outlets. Yeah. If you want to hit, like, if you want to hit that crowd and you're not trying to hit mainstream, mainstream, you just have to pay up. That's just the way it works, at least with my show. And so then we get to read and I will not yeah. agree to taking someone on. And I don't want to make myself sound like, total jerk. I'm not a jerk about it. It's just like what I can do, the best favor I can do to any sponsor is to have as many check boxes on my checklist to ensure that they will be successful long-term before I say yes. Yeah. Also selfishly just saves us a lot of work. (laughs) Uh, But saying yes too quickly can create an incredible amount of busy work and repair that I just do not, and churn that we just do not want to deal with. Okay. So I get the read. If the read has a bunch of, especially any claims that I think are dubious related to anything scientific, certainly any kind of pseudo medical claims, or if they're like such and such has been rated number one out of blah, blah, blah. My team already knows this. So I'll get it. I'll be like source. I want to see citations. Mm. Number one, how? Who decided number one? What's the assessment? <laughs> yeah. What was the analytics yeah. firm? Did you pay for the analytics firm right. to do this? Yeah. 
There are many uh, ways to I'm, become number one. Yeah. I'm super <laughs> rigorous with that stuff. Oh, interesting. And so we get the read and then my team will do a first pass because they know what's, what's yeah. going to get, get me all riled up. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's great off, off the bat. Otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll do some modifications and then be like, all right, Tim is going to freestyle a lot of this. Ultimately final cut is up to him. He knows what works for his audience. Are you okay with that? Because if they need me to read something verbatim, it just ain't going to happen. That's not, not how I work. It's also not in their best interest because it won't sound like me. And then uh, we have, you know, the, the IO, like I think we're doing mandatory three spots maybe. Cause like, just, I mean, I imagine videos are, you have some idea of after you see things finished in post, you have an idea of how you think something might do, but it's, yeah. there's so much outside of your control and there's sure. so many variables and yeah. it depends on like news cycle, who knows mm-hmm. what's happening that week. I need somebody who can look at a pattern across three, not a single yeah. shot because it's just, it could be misleading either in overperformance totally. or an underperformance. I'm like, I want you to see the performance across three. Then, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a premium podcast, so it's expensive. So I'm also vetting, I'm looking at, okay, here's, I don't, I've never talked about this. This is why it's fun <laughs> to, 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 yeah. to have these kind of interviews sometimes, uh, because of my involvement with startups, I will look at the position mm. of the company from a funding perspective. Are they in a save the Titanic position where they're trying to do like a last Hail Mary to try to figure out bridge financing, in which case maybe I don't want to take that risk because this could perform super well and it could still get canned because they end up having to lay off half of their people and cut back on all these expenses. I want to know that if I do everything within my power and my team's power to ensure they are successful, that they have the capacity to stick with us for quite a long time. You mentioned Four Sigmatic. They're a great example. Uh, And of a success, uh, a success story on every level. Yeah. And so I might check some of that. Then I will, uh, also, <laughs> um, I will look at the read and I will look at where the, the, where the read takes people. Okay. So if someone is claiming they want to track, which a lot of people do, and that's fine. Yeah. First of all, there's a lot of slippage, right? Not everyone's going to use the URL. If they're using a tracking URL and they're like, get $1 off your new mattress, I'm like, not good enough. They're not going to use it. And then you are going to say your conversions are really bad. And you might use it to try to negotiate with us. Mm. Or you might genuinely believe that it performed poorly, but that's just because you did not provide sufficient incentive for people to use this laborious code (laughs) that you're asking them to use when they're listening to a podcast as a secondary activity, it's too big an ask. So I was like, very often I'll, I will negotiate, not negotiate. I'll, I'll just have someone on my team go back to the sponsor and be like, if you're going to use the tracking in that way, you need a better, you need a better deal. And that's it. End of story. (laughs) So, uh, and uh, that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. Another is looking at the landing page and going through the process of buying something, looking for technical glitches, looking for browser compatibility. I mean, like we do stuff that I, I really don't think most podcasts do. And uh, looking at optimizing all of the points, the potential failure points for conversion, so that if we send a bunch of traffic, we have a reasonable belief that it will convert well enough 
to lead to a sustained engagement with the sponsor. Because it's just a waste of everyone's time, I would say, in some cases, especially mine, to go to all that trouble of everything I just yeah, described yeah, yeah. and then to send a ton of traffic to a shitty website and then people can't access the right button on mobile. <laughs> and that has happened, mm-hmm. right? And it very rarely happens now because we do a lot of testing. Uh, I could keep going. I mean, this is- Yeah, I, I, you know but, what's interesting is we- have been talking about the question of how do you vet a brand partner? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of creators, YouTube creators are running into, you know, working with a brand for a while and then the brand gets into controversy or, or shuts down. Mm -hmm. You know, FTX was a huge one in the creator space. FTX was a big sponsor in the creator space. Mm -hmm. Um, BetterHelp, which is kind of Mm -hmm. oscillated and in and out of controversy um, at times. Um, And I actually believe the, the current YouTube brand integration is based on the podcast integration. Mm. I think it was the closest comp for a lot of yeah. brands, which was you're doing your your thing, whatever the content is that's attracting the audience. And then here's a 60 second window where you're going to give my brand messaging to your audience in your voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. just, that's comes straight from radio or podcasting. Right? A lot of brands don't even give you visual assets right. or any visual guidance, yeah. Yeah. really. And Creators have been asking us, like, how do you, we've been saying you should vet your brand partners. And for us, that means going to meet the founders of the company or spending a lot of time. You know, we, I represented our ad sales all the way up until last year mm-hmm. when we signed with an agency. Um, but that, even in in that scenario, I'm on the calls still. I'm not, yeah. not on the calls. It's just become a little bit easier and nicer to have a buffer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we vet by personality, but everything you just said, it was kind of the checklist of like, if you want to go mm-hmm. all in on vetting, which I think, again, back to the, one of the most important things you said is credibility is a scarce resource. So you're protecting mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, and ensuring success, because that is the product you're selling as a business, right? Yeah, it also means that I can have, I mean, I have three, I guess, three full-time employees and two of them have nothing to do with anything content related. Mm-hmm. The only way you're able to do something like that, and I'm not saying that is the right move, by the way. I think sure. it's probably t- too small in some respects, but I am obsessed with like elegant process. Mm. I get so turned on. It's activating for me. It's fun <laughs> for me yeah. to be like, all right, there are a lot of in- assumptions embedded in the, in the advice that I'm getting that will result in having this huge expansive team. Are those... A- are those accurate assumptions? Like, yeah, let me yeah. push back and stress test some of those. Okay, what seem to be creating a lot of this overhead? Let's just remove those and see if people will say yes. Looks like they might. Okay, fantastic. And the only way that I can do that is by, among many other things, having that type of vetting process. You know what's interesting yeah. is when we, uh, our company lacrosse network got acquired and when we got acquired, we, you know, I was still my job to go out and sell sponsorships. And we used to do five, $10,000 sponsorships on the channel. And we had a, a, a head of sales at the company that acquired us. And I sat with her and she was like, we're going to change the model. If someone, if anyone emails us, you're going to reply and say, our minimum spend is a hundred thousand. Do you mm-hmm. still want to get on the phone? Mm-hmm. And we're going to filter. And it was incredible because she, what she taught me was uh, it's the same amount of work to make a $5,000 deal and a $100,000 deal and a million dollar deal. Mm -hmm. So you need to identify where the highest 
Like where is where are those deals? And actually, don't I would spend argue any time. that in many cases, the lower the budget, the more talking you're going to have to do. Yeah, the mm-hmm. more challenging it is. Yeah, um, because you also potentially what you don't want to be is someone's biggest marketing spend. You know, or like no. mm-hmm. you, yeah. this is. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought this up. So when I have sponsors who check all the boxes I mentioned, but this is I'm getting the impression this is kind of a bet the farm yeah. type of move. I'm like, don't do it. I'm not yeah, going to yeah, take yeah. your money. Yeah, mm-hmm. like keep experimenting, grow, do A, B, and C. I really like you. Let's talk then. Yeah. And sometimes I'll ask. I don't do this super often because some of the other checkboxes now help with pre-vetting that, looking yeah. at, say, funding. There, there are websites online where you can figure out roughly how much money people have raised and places like TechCrunch and, and sure. Crunchbase and so on report these things. But I've turned away a whole bunch of sponsors, including folks who took it to heart, went out, did really, really well, then came back and spent like 10 times more than they were initially planning. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But had I said yes in the early stages, there's a very good chance they would have ended up roadkill. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Because they wouldn't have had the ability to spread out over multiple episodes. Yep. And man, if they had one out of three, let's say the first one, just face planted for whatever reason, yeah. you know, like that day Trump did whatever crazy yeah, thing yeah, and yeah. then pff, forget yeah. about it, news cycle, goodbye that would have been a potentially fatal financial mistake. It's a weird amount of pressure on the relationship when, the, yeah. when you're their yeah. biggest marketing spent. You yeah. Know? And you said something interesting. You said any level of discomfort will compound over time. Yeah. And I think that really mm-hmm. applies to the relationship with your partners and advertisers. Yeah. You can think about it like dating. It's like if, if you, if the honeymoon phase is like uncomfortable and (laughs) people are being really weirdly demanding and getting upset at small things. This is not going to get better Yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. Mm -hmm. This is before they give me money. Oh man, this is going to get so much worse. I think that goes for alignment with the product too. Yeah. You don't really enjoy the product or the people there. It's, it's hard to not be yourself. Yeah. Especially over a long period of time. I'll, I'll just to show you how, uh, high maintenance I am. There are cases where I will be in talks with a brand. I think I have a little bit of leeway to give this type of feedback simply because of my my track record with mm-hmm. the early stage tech investing, my involvement with a lot of these companies, but I'm not going to name names, but there are companies who come to me, they have a really good product, but it has one or two features that are really problematic. And I will, in some cases, go back and be like, I think this is a great product and they're launching in like two months, right? They don't have a lot of weight room. I'm like, but- I can't recommend it because this feature and this feature are a real problem. And it's like, if you change those features yeah. or like, if you can address this and this, then I'm happy to promote it in the ad read. Otherwise, if you have another product, we can consider that, but I can't recommend this one Wow. because I yeah. know that, well, I don't know. I, I do actually, because my audience is large enough. And right? if you have, if you have an audience, that's like, it's like, several times larger than New York city. It's like you, if you experience something is very, very frustrating. You are not going to be the only one, but is it going to be 1% of my audience? Is it going to be 50? Is it going to be 70? I don't know. And I'm not willing to take the risk. Yeah. Uh, so in yeah, some you, cases I'll actually ask for product or service, like feature development. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to be the face of customer support. Yeah. No. And people yeah. will let you know. Yeah, yeah that, exactly. <laughs> that happens with us. That's happened yeah. with us. Because I think what's important is you look at the context of a brand integration as a recommendation. I think yeah. that's actually a, a good term because I, I remember um, 
your book, The 4-Hour Workweek, was the first time I'd ever heard the term firing clients. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I worked my life as a, as a you know kid of immigrants. I lived in this like world of scarcity that if someone was willing to, to pay me for anything, I was willing to trade anything for that, right? And like coming up as an entrepreneur, we were incredibly niche. We started a business on YouTube in 2011 about lacrosse. Like that's the most po niche possible thing you yeah. can do. Uh, and revenue is very scarce. So if someone paid us, it was like, you know, we'll do anything. Um, we'll, we'll make sure it's all good and we'll over deliver and we'll, and um, when I heard that term firing clients, it was the first time I was like, am I, in, am I in control of this arrangement and can I be in control of this arrangement? And is it okay for me to set guardrails and be like, I don't like certain styles of working with you, even if there's a lot of money on the table. And I think it's an interesting thing to discuss as young creators start to get traction. There's more opportunity than ever right now to monetize immediately. How do you set up yourself to be able to, to hold off on monetization and to yeah. be able to say no. There are many different approaches to this and many different philosophical, let's just say, foundational beliefs that can set you on different courses. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So the first is there's, there's one school of thought, which is burn the ships, right? Like if you want to create a path for yourself don't give yourself option B. Mm -hmm. Burn the ships and put 110% into it. There is there is a, then a school on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is where I would fall, which is have some financial support in place, ideally so that you are not operating from a place of scarcity or desperation such that you can set constraints for yourself. So let's just say that one of those is I don't want to do all this like middle manager busy work. I want to really focus on interviewing people and yeah. like put my life force into A, B, and C. If you don't stick to your guns with that, you will get dragged <laughs> into just like a morass of yeah. all sorts mm -hmm. of bullshit. And uh, for that reason, it's, it's extremely helpful to have some source of income in your back pocket if you can pull it off. So I would even say for most folks, look, if it is easy to experiment on say YouTube or in a podcast, it's low cost. You can try it out for a while and continue to do whatever you have been doing. Uh, there are counterexamples of people who have like risked it all and gone for it and succeeded, but there's a survivorship bias. You don't get yeah. to hear from the 99 out of 100 mm -hmm. who blew themselves up in some fashion. So money aside, my assumption is that most people who embark on a creative project don't necessarily have lifestyle boundaries in place no. for a creative project. That's right. What, and I know this is a much longer story that probably takes you back further, but what turned you into that person who was able to have lifestyle boundaries around a creative project? Oh, complete, complete implosion on every yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't like sit down and have a glass of wine yeah. and like figure out all these yeah. existential questions and go, you know what? Because mm -hmm. I start Before it's too projects, late, I'm going to fix yeah, this. Yeah. No, I just completely like yeah. blew apart okay. the seams. I was going to say, because I was like, yeah. I start creative projects, then implode yeah. at yeah. some point in time. Yeah, yeah. There's, I never go in being like, well, to maintain my lifestyle, yeah, no, yeah, I'm yeah. going to need X, Y, and Z. Yeah, no, I had a hard correction. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so this was, this was a long time ago, but I guess it was 2000, 
four, I want to say. I was dating this woman I thought was going to be you know, future wife, mother of my children. And mm-hmm. then one day she was just like, I'm done. I'm so done. I can't even begin to tell you how done I am. And I was like, what? You know, caught me as a surprise. It should not have been a surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, I was not present at all for anything because I was mm-hmm. working all the time. And that led to sort of personal crisis of meaning. It looked at the business, which at the time was sports nutrition. And I thought to myself, all right, if I don't have time, yeah. right, this non-renewable yeah. resource, it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't trade that money for anything. Okay, if I telescope out five years, this just gets worse if I continue doing this the way that I'm doing it. And that led to all the experiments that led ultimately to teaching these classes at uh, you know, the school I graduated from. And then the, all the notes from those classes turned into the four-hour work week. Mm. that was, I suppose, the cocktail of factors mm-hmm. that led to a correction. Mm. It was not a moment of enlightenment. It was more severe punishment yeah. leading to, <laughs> I need to change something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Interesting. I'm curious if you've had the the level of depth you go in with your partners, mm-hmm. have there ever been deals that are uh, cash and equity like, do you take equity in any of those deals? Do you not invest, as part of the podcast. Not no. as part of the podcast. Ad. No. Okay. Uh, I've thought about it though. Yeah. I've thought about it. And especially because hey, my life works without the income from the podcast. I mean, the podcast does feed a lot of everything else, which is spectacular. But I have thought actually recently about potential equity, but that brings a whole slew totally. of separate mm-hmm. headache that I'm happy to talk about because I've spent a lot of time in the equity world. But I, I will say historically, no, there's, there's no equity component. It's Got just it. straight cash, prepaid. That no is terms. something that creators are starting to do. So I'm yeah. curious, what are the headaches? Because it is something we are hearing. I hear a lot of yeah, creators yeah. that go, and I'm we, starting to take equity now. We also- yeah. beca- I, can, I can talk that. I've done yeah. a lot of equity. Yeah, just curious your experience with that. All right, so on the equity side, I mean, I've, I've done advising and investing. And have probably invested in a hundred plus com- companies at this point. I mean, over a long period of time. So I started in two. And those include Uber, yeah, Shopify. F- Ooh, yeah, first one of the first three advisors to Uber in like two thousand eight. Uh, Shopify first advisor, and they had like twelve employees. Uh, Duolingo first round of investment. It's a long list. Yeah, yeah, and most of them die. By the way, which is right. one mm-hmm. of the risks we'll talk about. Most startups fail. And in the case of startups, each of the bets that you make needs to have the, the, the capacity of returning all the money you lost and much more over a string of bad luck. String of bad luck could include global recession, could include any number of factors, right? So investing, you put money in, you get some percentage of the company. Generally, it's going to be pretty small depending on the, yeah. the size of the company. And then you go from there and it's kind of zero to zero or one uh, binary generally it goes to zero or you make some money uh, and then you wait. So there's another risk of equity in most cases. And I think if you're you know, Mr. Beast or something, you can make requests of companies that fit a different profile. Right. But by and large, if you invest in a company that is growing or going to grow really, really well, but it's early stage, it's seven to 10 years to an exit. Wow. That's a long time. Long wait. It's a long wait. So advising is where you put in sweat equity. 
And there are certain expectations that you want to make sure everyone is on the same page about, like what the deliverables might be as an advisor. What is the work you are going to do? What help are you going to provide or services or exposure? Make that really concrete. And then over time, they will give you equity. The downside there versus investing is you got to work for it. Yeah. You got to put in time. And I will say that in an advising situation, because I don't know how these deals are structured, I I would love to know what YouTubers are doing Mm. exactly. Like if they're putting in money or if it's like, I will do these things, therefore give me equity. Because the risk of the latter, as appealing as it seems, because it's like, I don't have to put in any money, but by the way, time energy equals money in a lot of ways. So you are kind of doing the same thing. If you do something along the lines of advising and the company does not work out, you can end up being (laughs) like the hired help for like 10 years right? Mm. and have no financial return. Right. And how many of those can you afford to have? So I don't do, I haven't done any advising in a very, very long time because I view the downside risk for me now at this point in my life is higher than investing. Investing, you know, your downside. Right it's capped at whatever you put in. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about pricing strategy? You, you spoke mm-hmm. a, you, you spoke about, you know, keeping your rates really premium on mm-hmm. your ad rates. And I think a lot of creators who listen to our show and a lot of, I think even entrepreneurs, like, you know, there's the mathematical side of all of this, which is like CPMs, mm-hmm. right? And, and YouTube AdSense gives us a CPM um, that we fall under. When you go out to sell a brand deal uh, or a brand partnership, and you're talking pricing, I think there's a lot more nuance to that mm-hmm. based on audience quality, how yep. relevant it is to the advertiser. How have you thought about pricing strategy and what advice can you give on how creators can price themselves? Yeah, my, my pricing has uh, largely stayed exactly the same. I think I could probably increase it in a couple of instances. I think we're at $60 CPMs, something like that. And I think we could probably charge two or three times that for yeah. some of what mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. Uh, so I've been a bit, lackadaisical maybe, lazy in, uh, in toying with it too much. But at the time that was considered insane. Yeah. Because I think Meaning when you started or, Oh yeah. When I started. So when you started, you started at a $60 CPM. Yeah. I, I just wanted to be basically the most expensive or one of the most expensive. And I looked at, I think at the time, some of the NPR shows were like $12 CPMs, but they were third party red. So not host red. And uh, the reads were very short they did not tie into the hosts in any yeah. meaningful way whatsoever. And I thought, okay, the, the, I assume the conversions on those are quite bad. Do I think my conversions could be four times better? Absolutely. I mm-hmm. think they could probably be 10 times better. And therefore, and I do this a lot. I will, I aim for ultra premium. And this is something I talked about even way back in the day, I guess in 2005, when I was writing the four hour work week, there's always a market for the best. Always. When you get into trouble, in my experience, is in this bloody middle where you end up negotiating your rates to appease advertisers who are bargain hunting or yeah, price yeah. shopping. Yeah. What, so my, my, one of my goals from the outset was to, by approaching long form in the way that I've approached it with complex subjects with difficult to reach guests or just amazing guests no one's ever heard of. Right. So I am a source of 
new experts for people who want that type of exposure, I would attract an audience that would be so valuable that I could charge effectively whatever I want Mm. and still have confidence that for a certain subset of sponsors, that would make a lot of financial sense or potentially make a lot of financial sense. It, all of this brings up like quality of audience versus, you know, just size, scale and scope. Mm-hmm. And I think also quality of partnerships, quality of, you know, quality as like a, a um, as a factor in this career, which I think is something that is often overlooked, especially now that, you know, the, the biggest difference I would say between podcasting and YouTube from a audience perspective is the public view count. Yep. The public view count creates an, a whole new layer of yeah. complexity, right? Yeah. Like audiences value a layer of FOMO and yeah. And, and all sorts of dynamics. Yeah. I mean, advertisers value you based on that largely your subscriber count and your view count, your average view, you know, views per video audiences make decisions on if you are a quality creator, right? Yep. Based on that, um, the market kind of can look at you at a glance on mm-hmm. YouTube yep. and make that snap decision. It's very different in private environments, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a, a podcast RSS feed, or, you know, we have a newsletter. We know how many people are part mm-hmm. of the newsletter. We, we publicly talk about that. We, yeah. we want people to know what's, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, but a lot of advertisers, you know, or a lot of people in the market doesn't know how many people yep. are there. Um, and I think it's such a different, it's such an interesting, it's very different. It, it's changed a lot in, mm-hmm. in the context of what we value. Quantity becomes at the top of that list from a value perspective, because it's important for your perception to the rest of the market, mm-hmm. right? Like if we're getting 10,000 views an episode versus 100,000 versus 500,000 versus a million, all those numbers I just said give you a completely different perception of how big, you know, yeah. literally how big our show is, but also like how premium it is and mm-hmm. how much it matters in the market and, and all the above. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that to be something that's that's a really interesting trade-off of putting your work on YouTube or- Yeah, it's, know, a, it's a huge else. difference. It's yeah. a huge difference. And- I, for one, love <laughs> being in on a playing field yeah. where because that is not openly transparent on a given platform, the advertisers pay less attention to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. just, it's sort of this invisible factor. And ultimately, what at least I've seen over the last five years certainly is a lot of these brands, maybe it's different because I'm just such an anomaly in how I run the podcast and mm. the rules and policies are so strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're strange. They're just unorthodox. They just care if on the, their return on ad spend, right? That's yeah, most yeah, yeah. people mm-hmm. are like, I don't care what numbers you show me. Sure, sure. Ultimately it's like dollars in dollars out. What yeah. does it look mm-hmm. like? Great. Yeah. I'm like, that simplifies things tremendously. And I'm also in a very advantageous position because I started when there was much less noise. Totally. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I was yeah. able to reach escape velocity at a time where it was easier in a sense, simpler, maybe both. And sustaining that escape is easier than achieving it mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. for yeah. sure. I, I would also just add one thing to that came to mind to the equity yeah, question sure. earlier, which is, I think we are going into a climate where a lot of startups are going to die. Yeah. And 
I don't think the pain has fully been felt yet by a lot of companies that have raised a good amount of capital from uh, venture funds and that likely it's sort of Q1 2024 when things are going to get really ugly. And a lot of these companies that are spending very, very heavily on podcasts, probably on YouTube, uh, are going to run into some real challenges and we'll probably have to cut back a lot in every conceivable area and many of them will go to business. So there's quite a lot of risk, I think, in equity deals yeah. right now, unless you are the lever right. yeah. that can Which, which is happening, on. right? Oh, you, sure. you brought mm-hmm. up Mr. Beast and yeah. you know, you okay. look- yeah. what he's doing or Logan Paul with prime. Like, There's so many. Yeah. I mean, there, these- there are a bunch. I mean, I was with the, the Shopify guys recently at South by Southwest at their, I can't remember the term. Yeah. They used, the the Creator Mart. Yeah. Yeah. Creator yeah. Mart. We were and, with Harley the next day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just walking around and hearing the backstory on yeah. some of these companies, it's yeah. incredible how much revenue they're yeah. driving, which are in most cases, products and companies that these creators are founding themselves as mm-hmm. opposed to, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't think they are, other founders companies that they're taking small equity positions in. So if it's a fascinating game, I would just say there's, there's a good amount of risk in, in taking equity, especially because if you're, if you're taking equity, whether it's advising or investing in later stage companies, the valuation is going to be higher. Mm -hmm. So the percentage you're going to get is going to be lower. And there are, if they don't die, a lot of these companies are going to have, down rounds, which means their valuation is going to go down. Right. And depending on your, this is going to get a little technical, but depending on the preference stack sure. and whoever comes in to rescue them, if they have sort of preferred equity, you might get wiped out. Yeah. And those people kind of last money in, first money out mm-hmm. could cause all sorts of headaches for you later, which is how, you know, I've ended up advising some companies for like seven to 10 years Yeah, and then end up with like enough money for Chipotle. <laughs> yeah. I'm like literally yeah, getting a check. Yeah. I'm like, that's twelve dollars and fifty seven cents. Awesome. Wild, <laughs> um, so yeah. you just need to be aware right. of of the risk. But I, a lot of these uh, creators, I think, especially on YouTube, have tremendous leverage to run really cool experiments. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it does beget or beg. I suppose I'm not sure which it is. I guess it could be either. The question of do you want to run a business? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a big question. Do you yeah. really want to run a business? Do you, or do you just like the idea of running a business? Because yeah. those are different. Um, I do want to zoom into like collaborations. Collaborations mm-hmm. are a massive thing on YouTube. It's like you know how you grow. It's it's a culture, and in the interview context, like you know this is a collaboration. You mm-hmm. know, and y- you mentioned like hard to reach guests is was something that you wanted to focus on with with your show early on, early on. And I think that you have delivered on, um, Mm -hmm. I vividly remember when LeBron James was on your show. Yeah. I remember that because I was like, so kind of floored by it. I never heard LeBron James in a long form conversation. Yeah. Me neither. Um, (laughs) What's that recipe for, you know, interviewing someone or even getting to the interview? Like, how do you get to that collaboration? How do you get to that interview? I would say number one in, in getting big guests is, playing the long game and I can give examples of that, right? Like Schwarzenegger probably took a year and a half in terms of initial contact with someone in his orbit to being in person. Hugh Jackman took more than two years. Jamie Foxx, probably two year plus, right? 
And those are Jamie Foxx and Arnold Schwarzenegger are two of the names that I think led to that early inflection point with respect to the ability to recruit A-listers because A-listers understandably look for credibility indicators in the form of past guests. There are a few things that I've set very early on as policies that I think have been very helpful. So number one, and this was also a differentiator early on because I was doing remote when remote was more challenging to do. Getting someone to a studio, especially if it's someone who's more reclusive, is such a high hurdle. I just mm. decided to remove it entirely. So I would say, as I mentioned earlier, it's like we can record whatever is easy for you. We can do it remotely. It could be, you know, it, I don't, in a robe. A you could, yeah, you could be in a yeah. sauna. You yeah. could be in a robe. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're not going to do video. That yeah. was a selling point. And you have Final Cut, as does all uh, every guest who comes on the show. So that's still, I think, a very important and making it as easy as possible for people to say yes. Oh, I'll even say if we record the whole thing and for whatever reason you're unhappy with it, just can it. Mm. No problem. Yeah. And well, we didn't even talk about guest vetting. I mean, you heard about my sponsor vetting. Boy, yeah. I can't imagine what it's like. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of vetting. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of vetting. Uh, so by the time we get to booking, at this point, we have a very high degree of confidence they're going to be good guests. Right. And we don't make the guests jump through all that hurdles, but we do a lot of background work. And uh, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. If somebody has long-form audio or video, it makes it pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, and if that's not compelling, I don't care how much of an A-lister they are, it's just not going to happen hmm. for me at this point. It's not interesting. And if it's not interesting to me, my assumption is it's not going to be interesting to a bunch of my audience, and that's abusing my privilege of having an audience. So yeah. I don't do it. I will generally ask for the guests favorite long form interviews they've done. It could be text, it could be video, could be audio and reviewing those is kind of step number one. And then we will, in terms of prep, which relates to the question of making an interview work, go to, for instance, Wikipedia or look at profiles and look at tiny mentions that were glossed over, but not expanded upon like a little tiny nuggets, right? Could be anything, right? So-and-so is, I'm making this up, right? Like a Russian-French cop lit major at such and such mm -hmm. university for two years sure. and then switched to something else. Like, okay, I've never seen anyone ask about that. So I might start with something like that, especially with someone who's been interviewed a lot so that they, they sit up and they go, oh, you did your own. this isn't an yeah, autopilot yeah. interview. You've yeah. actually mm -hmm. done your homework. I will look at the, the, their favorite interviews to identify greatest hits in the sense, like if, if anyone has been interviewed for a period of time, they have material. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm basically looking at like the Netflix comedy special to be like, all right, what did they put in? Like, what would I put in the trailer yeah. to try to get people pulled in? All right. I want them to be comfortable I don't want to flood them with a bunch of novel questions right off the bat. With some guests, I'll do that, but very few. I don't want them to feel knocked on their heels too mm -hmm. quickly. So I will let them warm up and also engage the audience with one or two greatest hits stories that I'll generally yeah. prompt. I don't always do that, but I, I do it reasonably frequently to make them more comfortable. I will ask them if they have any 
points or topics they would like to explore, you know, exploratory bullets, let's just say. Sometimes they provide it, sometimes they don't. And then when we get on, I was going to say the phone, but it's not really the phone, although I have done that sometimes. But if we get on, let's just say, some type of recording platform for remote episode, and 90 plus percent of my episodes are remote, I really always try to take if they're not in a huge rush. And if they're in a huge rush, I've already made a right an error because that's not a great formula for a good interview. Uh, spend five to 10 minutes just talking. Let people limber up, myself included, before you launch into the first question. Mm. So I'll talk to them and I'll, I'll, I'll always say, look, this isn't live. You have final cut. If you want a bathroom break, a water break, whatever it might be, that's very easy. If you want to restate anything, you can just stop and then restate, and we'll fix it in post. If you say something, and you're like, oh, shouldn't have made that joke about my wife. Let's cut that. <laughs> we can cut it. Yeah, This is as friendly as it gets. And then I will ask, I'll ask the guest, what would make this time really well spent for you? What would make this a home run? Just like I asked you guys before we started. <laughs> Almost no interviewers ask interviewees that question ever. Mm, that's a good point. And it's so easy. Yeah. And I've had so many guests. I mean, I would say at least 20, 30% of the guests, especially those who do a lot of interviews are like, huh, I've actually never had someone ask me that. Yeah, it's a good point. And they're like, thank you for asking that. And then they think about it and they come back and I'll, because I'll say I, it, that can inform how I architect the conversation. And I have very interesting audience that can inform how I direct the conversation towards particular segments of my audience what would what would make this if you look back at it three months from now, it's come out and you say, Wow, if some if somebody else asks me what is one of your favorite interviews ever you've ever done, I want this one to be the uh, first one you send. That's a good that's a good note. And I'll say, you know, I always like to let people know where I'm gonna start so that we don't stumble out of the gate. Uh, I'm likely gonna ask you about this, da 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 da. Like, who is Joe Herbert and why is he important in your life? Does that make sense? Is that a comfortable place to start? Mm. And I'll do that before I have the rest of the housekeeping stuff mm -hmm. so that they have time to sit with that. And it has time to germinate so that by the time we get to it, it's like, boom, out of the gate, they're in good shape. And I really feel like the tenor of interviews often, not always, but it's decided in the first 10 minutes. So you really want to do everything that you can possibly do to ensure that the takeoff, like taxiing takeoff is as smooth as possible. So those are, those are a few oh, things. That's, that's wow. really good advice. Your yeah. answer just revealed to me how new this career is for, <laughs> for us. Samir yeah. and I. Yeah. yeah. That wow. was so much for me of like, we did almost nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> almost <laughs> nothing on that list. I consider yeah. you and I to have a lot yeah. of attention to detail yeah. with most of the things we do. But hearing that was so interesting because clearly you didn't start out the gate like that. No. Yeah. yeah. It's just stuff I figured it's, out. There's yeah. a lot behind the scenes. There's like yeah. the setup. It's like the, the, the gymnast who goes out in the Olympics and does mm -hmm. a routine yeah. <laughs> on the, you know, on the parallel bars. Didn't just walk out and do, there's like the warm yeah. up and everything going into that's really important. And mm. I view the interviews as a performance sport. That advice will mm. change the way that we, operate. Like, I just want to say thank you for that. Cause that, yeah, that, that was really helpful. And I, I wanted to ask you, um, 
you know, you've you've been now you're on the precipice of ten years, six hundred sixty four episodes, it's something like something that, like yeah. that at the recording of this, uh, nearing a billion downloads mm-hmm. of the show. Um, have you ever been at odds with the Tim Ferriss persona? Mm. Like, the, <laughs> you know, like you are, I, all of my friends, I can say, I'm, oh, I'm chatting with Tim Ferriss today and everyone can snap, be like, he experiments, he's into, you know, psychedelics right now. He's into, like, there is a being Tim Ferriss and being mm. this public, mm-hmm. people have expectations of who you are yeah. and, and what that means to be Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. In the last decade, have you been at odds with that persona? I will answer that. I want to ask you guys a question first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not a dodge. Yeah. I've just been, you might've noticed I'm like sure. looking around. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How the hell do you guys keep this much in your head? <laughs> I always have notes. Part of the reason I like to do remote interviews yeah. is I have copious notes in front of me. So mm-hmm. is this a out of the box ability? Is it a trained skill? Like do you guys uh, have some routine have for an actually- Okay, I have an answer as yeah. well. Keeping yeah. track of this stuff? You can go first. Uh, we are- uh, documentary filmmakers by trade. Mm-hmm. And in doing this, I'm looking at you, but I'm also looking at a timeline and live editing. So mm-hmm. I'm like, you said something over there that I want to connect back to, and I can mm-hmm. hold that in my head mm-hmm. while we continue and then bring this piece yeah. over here. Mm-hmm. And so it. Yeah. I can do, so yeah. I've trained that ability as well, just yeah. through the podcast. But what I'm wondering is when you come into this, you've prepared yeah. and you have, sure, who knows, 12 topics yeah. that you might want to touch on. Is that just a natural inborn ability to remember that list of things? I was looking around because I'm like, is there a prompter somewhere yeah, around here? Like, I just wanted to see. Yeah, what's your answer? Well, there's an element of writing it down. Yeah. Right. So we have research provided to us. Yeah. Interesting yeah. buckets. I wrote some of it down so that I could recall it. But there's also this element of if Samir is asking you a question, I have a moment. You have time. I have yeah. more time than a yeah. solo host. Yeah. to think about where this is going to go next. Right. Or if I want to take it in a completely different direction. Yeah, that's right? a good so point. I think that's some our tag team there's some, timing yeah, involved. Yeah. We have a bit of a competitive yeah. advantage there. Yeah. Uh, it can also be difficult yeah. because if I have a direction that I'm ready to go and all of a sudden Samir or you take it in another mm-hmm. direction, I have to let that go. Yeah. And we both took improv class, which helped with that uh-huh. separately um, because of that requirement of yes ending yes both, and, both yeah. the guest but also each other because mm. you, you know i can be i can hear you and i'm like i know exactly where i want to go next and then call and ask a question and it's like over there <laughs> yeah and i have to be fully present yeah. and okay with yeah. maybe my question won't come up in the natural flow of conversation i have mm-hmm. to let that go and that is a dance that we have to do together but also with our guest and the, the other thing I would say is we're trying our best right now to explore the relationship with preparation mm-hmm. and natural curiosity. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, that's a really hard mm-hmm. balance that I've noticed sometimes when we're overprepared, I'm not even listening to what you're saying. I yeah, just know yeah. where I'm going and, and, there are different, and I know where you're going And too. there are different styles. Yeah. There yeah. are so many different styles. You do not need to, for people listening or watching, yeah. emulate any one person, right? I mean, when I was getting started, and I will come back to your question, yeah. the- the habit that I have and I always have, which I think is a good one generally, is to like research, 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 study, 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 study. So I was looking at Terry Gross. I was looking at Howard Stern. I was studying James Lipton of Inside the Actor's Studio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually hired some of his researchers at one point as contractors to read through transcripts of my interviews to point out where I could improve. I really went after it. But if you look at, say, James Lipton, my understanding is he's got his his blue cards and he never deviates from those cards. Mm. 
In other words, he does not take the side alleys. If something comes yeah. up and it could be interesting to explore, he does not deviate. And guess what? It worked great. Now, they also did quite a bit of editing. So they would record multiple sure. hours and then cut down to whatever it would be, 45 minutes or an hour. And then there are others who would come in basically blind. Larry King, mm -hmm. blind, like effectively yeah. no prep. And he's like, I want to mm -hmm. stand in for the audience. Now, maybe that's a very <laughs> elevated way of saying I don't want to do research. I don't know. Yeah. But he was good enough to make it work. I also think then it was easier in a sense because if you'd made it through the sensors and the, the gatekeepers to a point where you are one of the four interviewers on primetime, you have a lot of license to do things that you cannot do in an environment where you have to vie for attention the way that you guys do yep. or that I do. To answer your question, at odds, have I been at odds with the Tim Ferriss persona? I would say when I feel like maybe I'm getting too comfortable in a lane or fearful that I need to protect whatever identity I have created, which is not frequent, but if I think I, the way that manifests is if I start thinking, if the thought occurs to me that I shouldn't do X, I really should do more of Y, but I don't really want to, but I can't do whatever this is over yeah. here. When I start constricting myself in that way, I'm like, okay, this is a bad habit. I want to nip this in the bud right now. Mm. So I'm going to put up some social post that is definitely reflective of my true personality, yeah. but it's going to offend the shit out of like half my audience. <laughs> And if, they, if they're not willing to accept that, yeah. I don't really want to be shaped by them because we mm. do get shaped by our audiences Absolutely. and you have to be very, very, very cognizant of that. It's going to happen no matter what, but you can become, I'll give yeah. you an example. Maybe a year ago, could have been two years ago, with my team, we looked at the top 20 performers in terms of total downloads over the first six weeks, something like that for the prior year. And the first three episodes, like the, the gold, silver, and bronze medalists were all crypto related. All right. So the, the immediate thought and recommendation from some other people, like consultant types we were working with was double down on crypto, do more crypto. And I thought to myself, let's telescope out. What does this look like if I take that advice? This becomes a crypto show. Do I personally want to talk about this all the time? Answer is no. Every once in a blue moon, yes. And if I double and triple down on this, I think it's I think it's playing a very short-term game and I don't want to play short-term. This this is something I want to play long-term. So by by I think pushing back instinctively or just as a policy against anything that I feel compelled to do, whether it's related to my own identity or direction of the podcast, I prevent getting too attached. And every once in a blue moon, right? It's like, okay, it's crypto, crypto, crypto. But then I do an interview, I think it was Dr. Sue Johnson, this late 70s, maybe 80s relationship slash family therapist in Canada. And this thing exploded. It went completely bananas. And I was like, thank God that it doesn't all have to be crypto. Yeah, you're following your authenticity. Yeah, I'm following my interest. And- uh, so I'd say that those are, I, I think about this a lot though, yeah. because it's very easy to be shaped by your audience. It's very easy to be shaped by whatever trends or fads yeah. are really prevalent. It's easy to be shaped by the market. Easy to be shaped by the market. Yeah. And uh, I would just make a couple of suggestions to folks. So part of what has really informed my thinking are 
there's a chapter that is in the 22 immutable laws of marketing. It's incredibly outdated in a bunch of ways, but there's one short chapter. It's probably five to 10 pages long called the, the, the law of category, which was incredibly impactful for me. And effectively it's just saying, don't be the best, be the only, like, how do you create new categories? The question of how, how can I be a category of one? Yeah. Right. So when people ask me like, how do you feel about your competitors? I'm like, I don't view any of these people as competitors. As soon as you start thinking competitive terms, you're going to start making compromises and succumbing to groupthink and, uh, conforming in ways that you may not even recognize. And yeah. that will lead you to be less differentiated, mm. generally speaking. Uh, but it's it's easier for me to sit here and say all this stuff than it is someone who's in hyper growth mode in the mm-hmm. first few years yeah. Yeah. of a project. Mm-hmm. It's like in the beginning, you got to buy your first few clients in a sense, right? When I did my first angel investing, I deliberately set out to make myself the cheapest labor on the cap table. What all that means is I'm putting in like, 10k investment, right? Yeah. Even if it's a a moonshot that pays off, like yeah. okay, so maybe I make a hundred grand over ten years. <laughs> it's yeah, not, yeah. Uh, you know, the sort of net present value of that. It's like it's just not a huge payoff. And I was like, I'm going to put in a hundred thousand dollars worth of value in terms of mm. my work for this company if I'm advising in like the first two months. And they're going to be like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Like, it doesn't make any sense for him. But what was I after? I wasn't after the payoff of that company. I was after a referral. I wanted a, right. the strongest possible recommendation mm-hmm. from that person to the next CEO yeah. or founder. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in the beginning, you, you may and probably will have to bend over backwards to make sponsors happy, even yeah. if it financially ends up making very little sense for you because you're putting in so much time. Yeah. But- what do you need? You need referral and credibility. Yeah. Mm, credibility. And once you build that momentum, you are in very good shape, assuming you don't destroy your reputation somehow right. or damage it, right, right. which is surprisingly easy to do if you start cutting corners. That's really helpful. Is there still space in the podcast world for creators? I think so. You just have to compete. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a bloodbath out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I would yeah. say that if you are, it depends on why you're going on. Is there room to go in and do interesting things and find it incredibly personally rewarding if you approach it the right way? Yeah. Yes. Is there room for creating something that is financially viable if you have the hope of supporting yourself and maybe even your family with a very comfortable lifestyle, but not private jets and like yeah, yeah. flying to Cannes and whining mm-hmm. and dining with Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. But if your aspiration is the Leo, this is, this is, this is all or nothing. Yeah. I either want to be a super celebrity raking in millions of dollars a year, or it's a failure. Then you're setting yourself up for a psychological implosion. Right. And it's the odds are against you. Yeah. I would say if you on the flip side, read 1000 true fans from Kevin Kelly, you can find it at kk.org. And you pick up a couple of other things and you're like, all right, I just want to feel like I am contributing to a community of like-minded people who I really like Mm. doing something that I respect myself for doing. Yeah. Try it and Mm. do it in the most, in the, in the lightest way possible. Mm. Right. Cheap, fast experiments. For me, that's the name of the game. I still, 
I mean, I, I have the resources to do ex- expensive experiments. I very rarely do expensive experiments. Number one, because I think they're, they're not necessary. Number two, I think that you actually create friction for yourself yeah. mm-hmm. by making things more expensive mm-hmm. or having them become projects when really they're, they shouldn't be a six month commitment. They should be a two week commitment. Uh, so I, I really try to hold on to a lot of these things lightly. And also it's like, if you zoom out, it's like, look, this is not my phrasing, but it's like, we're a bunch of monkeys on a spinning rock, like in the middle of the cosmos. <laughs> who, who fucking cares? Like, you know, like try your yeah, new YouTube yeah. format. Oh God, the <laughs> yeah. sky is falling. If it, no, yeah. it's no, like yeah. Alexander the Great, what's his full name? Greatest conqueror the world has ever known. Like nobody knows. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. really like this is not going to be in the grand scheme of things. 10 years from now, something that yeah. you worry about. So like, mm-hmm. try it out. And yeah. you can always put that jacket back on. I love that. I really, really, really enjoyed your ebook of the 17 questions to ask yourself. Mm. And uh, I just wanted to ask if you could talk through some of those questions and, and where you came up with those. Yeah. Because I find as I go through my creator journey and my entrepreneurial journey, it's like, um, I'm very good at finding solutions to problems or answers to questions that someone brings to me, but I'm not very good at finding the questions I should be asking myself. Mm-hmm. And I've, I found that to be a very cool ebook that you created and, and really good questions that make you ponder of what are you, what are you spending your time on? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, totally. Those 17 questions, I think they appear in tools of Titans, maybe tribe of mentors. One of those two books, those are questions that I have gathered over a few decades. Mm. Right? So I'd say number one is just borrow shamelessly. Whenever you come across a good question, capture it somehow. Mm. I, I do that. I collect questions. So if I'm reading an in-flight magazine and there's an interview and I'm like, huh, terrible interview, but that question's really good. Mm. I will literally, I'm not proud of this, but I guess back in the day I would tear out the page. Now I just right, take right. a photograph and sometimes they work. Sometimes they completely flub. Yeah. <laughs> they don't work at all. That happens too. Fix it in post. That's my recommendation. But those questions have helped me. So I return to them frequently. And uh, this is top of mind because a, a younger friend of mine came to me asking me about these 17 questions. And he said, how do you come up with these questions? And I was like, well, first of all, you should notice that some of them are just stolen. Yeah. And uh, there's one, for instance, which is, am I, am I hunting field mice or antelope. And (laughs) yeah, the whole story that that goes around it is if you're a lion, you can stay alive by hunting field mice and spending all of your time hunting field mice, but you're much better suited to going Mm. after big game and going through intense sort of sprints of focus that allow you to down Mm. real significant prey. And so it's just an easy metaphor to ask yourself, am I majoring in the minor things? Yeah. Right. right. Am I, am I really focused on the one or two things that could change everything? The one or two things that can make everything else easier or irrelevant, or am I just scattered and doing yeah. every tiny task that grabs my attention because I don't have a forcing function. So that's one. Then there are others which are older for me, like, what if I did the opposite for 48 hours with respect to business process? Mm. Right. So if I'm checking email 10 times a day, 
What if I checked it no times a day for 48 hours? What else could I focus on? If I currently, and these aren't exactly opposites, but people will get the idea to do something dramatically different from what you were currently doing. So if you really curtail, let's just say the ability that your team has or an assistant to make decisions that are above a certain dollar threshold. Right, let's just say you let them make decisions, but anything above $100 you want to have your say on or $1,000, whatever it be like, what happens if you just completely rewrite that for something significantly higher? I'm not saying you should do this. This sure. is yeah, hypothetical. Right, like, well, if you make yeah. it $10,000 for a week and you're like, all right, I'm going to keep an eye on it so yeah. it doesn't run out of control, like what actually happens? Chances are that whatever downside risk you had thought was a prohibitive risk that has led to this yeah. policy that actually is very draining for you personally and it makes you a bottleneck could be removed. There's very, very frequently. And once you stress test it by doing the opposite for say 48 hours or a week, whatever the time frame might be, you can remove it. Let's see. There are a whole lot of questions. Those are the ones that come to mind for yeah. me right now. I think mm -hmm. because they're relevant to yeah. decisions that I'm making probably in the mm -hmm. next handful of months. Are there any others that, that stick out no, to you? No, I, I really like those. I think, um, I think, you know, the, the frameworks that you provide, especially with those, the, the opposite is a really interesting one because it addresses something else I wanted to talk to you about, which was fear setting. Mm -hmm. Like the opposite is a lot of our actions. I feel like in a day are, are, uh, you live in, in fear of what if you don't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so if we're like, let's say we're sometimes I, try and sit and question everything we're doing, right? Which is mm -hmm. similar to that, where it's like, what if we, what if we didn't upload the video of this? What mm -hmm. if we, what if we, you know, didn't do this show at all? What if we don't upload YouTube videos? What is it like live in the world of just the complete opposite of what you're spending day to day on? And I think it's also allowed me personally to say, what if I wasn't on sales calls? Mm -hmm. What what is the what is the risk? How how do I evaluate that? Because I been think very, you can get off sales calls. Yeah, it's, I, but I, it, it took me a long time to do it because I was fearful. Yeah, yeah, I was very fearful for like sure. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if I what if I didn't do that? And then you you I've look, been off sales calls this whole time. You've been off sales calls the whole time. <laughs> look yeah. at me, you know. But it addresses that the questions yeah. that uh, I would love for you to to speak about fear and and fear setting because mm -hmm. it's another one of your frameworks that I really appreciate and I think that um. As, as, as an entrepreneur and as a creator, like fear has been such a presence in my journey. Um, and we talk so much about goal setting. Whenever I'm feeling fear, I will goal set. I'll be like, let me get, let me hit pen and paper yeah. and say, okay, what am I working towards? What's my North star? But I won't address the fears. Mm -hmm. And your framework was the first time I heard of something that allowed me to say, wait, I can actually just write these down and address them. Yeah. Yeah, happy to talk about that. And yeah. another question that I ask myself frequently, which I think would be great for creators to play with mm. is if you had to take a four week vacation, yeah, not two, like you, you can't let things catch on fire and then put on band-aids after four weeks, right? Maybe yeah. you can do that for a handful of days, maybe yeah. a week you can let the house catch on fire and then try to put it out. But if you had to take four weeks, no computer, no phone, you are off the grid. What kind of systems would you put in place? If you had to do it, what kind of systems would you put in place? How would you make it work? How could you make it work is, is a really helpful exercise. Mm, right? Yeah. So on the fear side, so fear setting first, 
I guess, made its public appearance for me at least in the four hour work week. And I've continued to do it probably once a quarter, sometimes more frequently, depending on what neuroses, you know, has, has gripped me at mm-hmm. the, at the time. <laughs> and, uh, it's very straightforward. So in the same way that you would goal set and make things specific, measurable, achievable, you know, smart, right? <laughs> Have time bound, et cetera. You're applying a lot of these same criteria to your fears. And therefore the name is fear setting because the, the, the fears really exert the most paralysis and produce the most anxiety when they are nebulous. Yeah. When they're unclear, when you're just in a room of psycho-emotional smoke. And there are some easy ways to to clear that out, right? I think it was, it was Yoda who said, name must your fear be before banish it you can. Mm-hmm. I you wouldn't, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't know. But something yeah, along, yeah, those something lines. along those lines, sure, yeah. That's for, that's for you, <laughs> Star Wars nerds. <laughs> Naming your fear allows you to defang it in some interesting ways. And this is directly borrowed from it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a slightly user friendlier version or more concrete version of something called uh, premeditatio malorum, which is an exercise from stoicism. Seneca, the younger has, has written extensively about this, but the power of negative visualization, in other words, the benefits of imagining the worst case scenario. And some people might say, and I run into this sometimes, they're like, well, like you're just going to manifest the worst thing if you're constantly focused on that. It's not to constantly focus on it. The only way you can avoid constantly focusing on it, I think, is by kind of trapping it on paper in a way that lets you, to, lets you see how manageable most of your fears are. And the way you do that is, is straightforward. And I can also recommend if people are more visual, I have a a TED talk that I gave some time ago. Uh, it's it's done quite well. Uh, I think if you just search my name in fear setting in video, or if you go to tim.blog slash TED, then you'll find that as well as uh, a script that you can look at. It's very simple. So let's say we'll take the four week off example. So you're imagining taking a vacation, but if you're like most driven entrepreneurs, and maybe we should come back to drive at some point, but most driven entrepreneurs, <laughs> uh, your your utopian ideals that you have in your head of what entrepreneurship will look like are shattered pretty quickly, and then you just end up working all the time. <laughs> so maybe the idea of taking four weeks off it seems like a complete impossibility. It's like, okay, well, let's stress test that. Rather than just saying, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. Like, well, let's test that a little bit. Maybe you're right. You might be right. In some cases, you examine your fears and you're like, yeah, that shit's scary. I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But you should at least cross-examine them first. And the, the way you do it is very simple. Grab a piece of paper. You can do this digitally. I find it better to do offline because there are so many things that can pull you in terms of notifications and distractions if you're online. That's also a challenge of YouTube versus podcast. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, are there so many shiny objects trying to grab you in the periphery of that mm-hmm. video. Okay. So you have a piece of paper, make, make three columns. The first column is listing out all the things that can go wrong. So you take four week vacation. What are the things that can go wrong? 
and you write them out and make them as, as specific as possible, right? So who knows? I remember when I first did this, this is a long time ago, but it was like, I'm going to miss a letter from the IRS and I'm going to get in trouble and they're going to audit me and da, yeah. da, 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 da. Okay. That's one. Next one is uh, some suppliers going to go out of business. This is when I was running the sports nutrition company and manufacturing is going to have an issue and yada, yada, yada. Right. Okay. And down you go in this column and try to come up with at least 10. Okay. That's like the, the, the worst things column. The next column is what you could do to minimize the likelihood of those things happening. Right. So mm -hmm. missing the IRS letter, you could redirect those letters somewhere else. There are a number of services that will forward mail or yeah. PDF scan them and send them to people like, for instance, your accountant. Yeah. Great. That should solve the problem. Right. And then you go down, all right, supplier issues. Well, maybe if the supplier issues, and this is a real example from, from, uh, from my life, most likely problem scenario was running out of one or two bottleneck ingredients in some of these products. I was like, okay, well, it would be a little expensive, but what if we pre-ordered a stockpile of this so that at least for a period of three months, the likelihood of it running out was effectively zero, assuming no spoilage. Would that solve like 90% of the supply chain issues? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that might fix it. Things you could do to minimize the likelihood of these things happening. Third column, if this thing happens, what could I do to recover from the damage or get back to baseline, right? So let's say you have one that's really looming large, right? The whole business fails and like this income that I have that pays for blah, blah, blah just disappears. Okay, well, if you have a low burn lifestyle, which I had at the time, mm -hmm. uh, I can go get a job like serving in a restaurant. Yeah. And like, if it got really bad, I could ask some friends to like loan me some money. Yeah, I could go into credit card debt, but the, I, it, it wouldn't be the end of the world as I know it. Sure, right? It's like okay, like if this thing happens, what could I do to undo some of the damage or at least get on my feet temporarily? And you just go through the list. You do the same thing, yeah. right? Miss a letter from the IRS, they get pissed off. What does that actually mean? Probably paying penalties. It's not like they're going to come in a black helicopter right. and <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. throw me in the back of an unmarked van. No, that's not going to happen. They're just going to be like, right. okay, idiot. Yeah. We're going to punish you with some fines. Like that's what's going to yeah. happen. Okay. Right. So you kind of walk through, if it happens, how could I, how could I undo the damage or get back on my feet? And you just go down the list. And in the span of doing this, and you could do this for a relationship, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you're considering getting into one. Maybe you're considering getting out of one. You could do this for a career shift. You could do this for launching a new channel. Yeah. Right. You could do that in my case. This is another sort of peek behind the curtain, but just for the purposes of longevity and sustainability, I experiment with podcast formats. I've done all sorts yeah. of weird experimental formats. I'll never and, forget the first time I heard you drunk dialing. Oh yeah. The yeah. drunk dialing episodes. I haven't done one of those in a while. Know, those got a little squirrely. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I would, an experiment I would, nonetheless. Yeah, I would have people, I would have people fill, fill out a Google form. Wow. Yeah. yeah I haven't done one of those in a while. And just for people that don't, yeah. who don't know. And yeah. then I would use Skype to just randomly call people. Yeah. I and between this hour and this hour. By and the then end, it I, got pretty interesting. It'd, yeah. It'd be yeah. interesting. And then yeah. I'd, so drunk dialing would be me like drink. Well, it's supposed yeah. to be slowly, but right. drinking whatever my favorite booze was. Yeah. And those got a little squirrely. Yeah. <laughs> but if I'm considering doing something like that, yeah. it's like, all right, well, what's the worst thing yeah. that can happen? Mm -hmm. 
Generally not it's, that much. It's so helpful to have it not just like ruminate in your head, like to just yeah. write it out in a framework. It's like, mm-hmm. it's incredibly helpful. So yeah. 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 If you have anxiety that is being produced by thinking, chances are th- more thinking is not going to fix it. <laughs> right. And uh, at least thinking as it ricochets in your head, yeah, like, yeah. put it on paper so you can see how fragile a lot of the assumptions are. Yeah, mm. totally. So that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's fear setting. And uh, certainly for me, at least as someone who tends to frankly be very fearful of a lot of things and mm. we could psychoanalyze and unpack shit out of that for ages. We won't do that today, but <laughs> it's goals are not the problem, right? Like pressing on the gas in six gear is not the problem. It's that I have the emergency brake on a lot of the time. Mm. So it's like, all right, how do we drive without having the emergency brake on Mm. unless it's absolutely necessary? Okay. And for that reason, I, I typically find fear setting very, very, Mm. very, very helpful. Tim, we could keep you here all night. We really could. We could talk to you <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. I think it's probably the deep parasocial relationship I have with you from years of listening. Haunting your dreams. I feel dreams. like I'm talking to an old friend. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on. I think you imparted a lot of um, wisdom, not only to our audience, but again, this is a selfish show for us. Yeah. Like yeah. this is an episode that uh, has been on my bucket list for a long time. And I, you said some things that are uh, tangibly going to change the way we operate. So I, Thanks, I really guys. appreciate that. Well, I woke up this morning and thought to myself, I'm speaking to an Olympic gold medalist interviewer yeah. this morning. Yeah. <laughs> So I was super excited. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. thanks, guys. You, I mean, you're you're excellent at what you do. Just a quick question. What would make this interview a home run? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we're about, you know, an hour and a half in or something, but, you know, just. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I, was, I was thinking that. <laughs> I was thinking that to myself, actually, coming yeah. in. I was like, what would be, I mean, aside from just enjoying the the dance of yeah. seeing how you guys do things and and hearing novel questions that force me to think about things differently. Yeah. Uh, I would say there are a few things that I'd love to draw attention to sure. for people who are interested. I started a foundation. I don't know how long ago it was <laughs> six to 10 years. <laughs> Time is a blur for me ago called SciSe foundation, S A I S E I foundation.org. People can check it out. So it's a nonprofit foundation that funds mostly early stage science related to basic science related to psychedelic compounds and then therapeutics. Uh, So I would encourage people to get engaged with that space if it's of interest. And you can learn more about that at SciSafeFoundation.org. Just look at the projects page. I think a lot of them are are, are interesting. And uh, if I may recommend people to please check out one other thing. So if I had to give up everything except for one way of reaching my audience, the, the, the one piece I would keep is actually the email list for a lot of reasons that we will talk about in a round two sometime. But if people want to see what that looks like, I've been doing five bullet Friday, which is this free newsletter. I've been doing it for a long time. God, I don't know how long it's been, but it's like every week for I subscribed in 2015. Every week. So it's basically a diary of the coolest things I've come across that week. Like it's the closest to a diary that I will ever come. Mm-hmm. So I actually go back and read old editions, which is really yeah. fun for me. Uh, so five bullet Friday, super simple. It's like a one pager that I send out every Friday of whatever the coolest things are that I've come across that week. Just go to tim.blog slash Friday and you yeah. can try it out. I'll second that recommendation. I'm a mm. subscriber. Yeah. Um, it's great. Yeah. All right, Tim. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so guys. much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.